You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's a juggling act. What I'm best at, I'm able to juggle, you know, 50 things that are on my mind at the same time and give it a priority and try not to make the client feel like they're getting short shrift. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. So why the heck am I playing Barbra Streisand as I introduce this week's podcast guest, lawyer to the stars, Mr. Mark Sendroff? Well, that's right. Mark and Barbara, they share a fantastic story. You're going to hear all about it on this week's episode. So keep on listening in. Uh, But before that, I do want to thank this week's sponsor of the podcast, the National Alliance for Musical Theater, NAMPT, as we call it here. Fantastic organization. They throw this incredible festival of new musicals every fall. If you can get yourself in, go check it out. It's a collection of regional theaters all over the country, passionate about one thing, doing new musicals. That's what it's all about. Do check out their website, www.namt.org. You can learn all about what they do. I'm a very, very proud member of NAMPT myself. Uh, And hey, you should be too. So go check it out. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit more Babs before we get to Mr. Sendroff. and welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. My name is Ken Davenport and this is going to be a very fun episode because talking to lawyers is always fun. Uh, And today we actually have a very, very special lawyer on the podcast. Some might call him Broadway's lawyers. The first lawyer I actually dealt with when I started my career way back when, do you remember the first time we ever came in communication? My recollection is you were the company manager on Showboat. That's it! And I had Florence Klotz, the costume designer, and probably some others that I'm forgetting, but I do remember you from Showboat. That's right, and I remember the first time I took a house order from you and hung <laughs> up the phone. I do, I hung up the phone because I didn't know who you were, and my boss, the company manager at the time, was like, he's a very important person, take very good care of him. Well. Uh, and that was way back, that was 1996 or something. Uh, you've grown even more important since then. Mark represents uh, one of some of the industry's top talents, including so many of our podcast guests. But everyone from Jason Robert Brown to Donna McKechnie to Lipsinka to Bob Mackey, Tommy Matola, I just was looking at his client list. It's, it's a incredible and a true testament to his talent is that he represents 
people on both sides of the curtain. Uh, performers, composers, producers, and actually shows themselves. You're a production attorney as well from time to time, yes? That's true. So tell me what came first for you, the interest in law or interest in the theater? Oh, certainly interest in show business and particularly theater. Um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do for a living, and I had a great love for show business, and I happened to have a family friend named Stephen Suskin who became a critic and an author, a critic for Variety and an author. And we were kids, and he said, you know, you should be a theater lawyer. He said, I work for David Merrick as a clerk, and uh, I know he had an attorney, has an attorney named Al Da Silva, and that's all this guy does is he works in the theater. And I thought, wow, my parents will be happy I'll be a lawyer, and I'll be happy I'll be in show business. That's, you know, where do I sign up? And it happened. I did it just in that way. I went to school. I got a job in a small office uh, working for a lawyer named Alan Bomser, who specialized in that. And um, he taught me my business, and I started to build a practice, and uh, here we are 40-some-odd years later. So, how old were you when he said this to you, that you should be a theater lawyer? I was in college, so, you know, 17, 18, something like that. And were you performing? Were you doing anything else? <laughs> I was time? doing... When I went to law school, I did summer stock the two summers prior to my law school, and then I knew that was that. You know, I was, I was a chorus boy in a, in a non-equity summer theater in Indiana, and I was loving it, but I knew I wasn't going to depend on, the, on my talents for a living, so... Uh, that was a uh, unique experience that I, my friends laugh at me because I still to this day talk about my summer stock experience, which goes back <laughs> as I, almost 50 years. But um, that's how it was. I, I want to dig into that a second because I think that's a, for, especially for a young person, to be able to objectively say, oh, I don't have what it takes to be as successful as I want to be someday in this field as a chorus boy, so I'm going to do something else. Do you remember? That, was it like a, oh, I, I'm not even going to try? There, I, yes, I'm not even going to try. There never was a moment when I thought that my talent was sufficient to bring me the kind of earning that I needed to have. I, I'm one of those guys that was taught to earn a living and, and care about a paycheck, and so many people in the arts, that's the main problem, is they live every day not knowing what the next job or the next dollar is going to come from. And so the highs are very high, but the lows are low. And uh, I, was, I was too... Uh, <sighs> Set my, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but it, I, it was indoctrinated in me from the very beginning that I had to earn a living and go to work and, and uh, couldn't do anything that uh, speculative. Do you remember the first Broadway show you ever saw? Yeah, I saw My Fair Lady, the original production. The original, is that when your love for the theater started? I don't, well, I mean, I liked the theater at that point. I don't think there was that moment, oh my God, no. I think it happened more during high school when I started to do some high school plays and, and hang around with the kids in the drama department and just get swept away by the personality and the, the sexiness of, of show business. That, uh, it's kind of finding your family, I always, I always think yeah. about it. It happened for me, too. I once was asked to write an article uh, and about uh, gay icons for a, for a newspaper. My friend Jim Caruso has this column. And so I wrote an article called, I went to law school to meet Stephen Eady. And that's true. I went to law school so that I could become part of the lives of the people who, at that time, I really uh, respected and uh, admired. And I did go on to represent Stephen Eady and many other, you know, Rosemary Clooney, many of my uh, childhood idols. Um, and the one that I was most addicted to was Barbara Streisand. And so I represent now her manager, her director, 
but not her. You know, so I'm like circling the wagon. All of the people that replaced her in Funny Girl, all the her understudies, her replacements, her copycats, all that. Never got to her. Not yet. I've met her. I have met her. Oh, I've met her. I've met her, but she hasn't uh, hired me. Did she ask you to like get her anything or open a door for her? Because that would qualify as work for me. If she said like, "Hey, would you come here?" I'd be like, "Okay, I've worked for you." Okay, so here's that story. I have a a client named Judy Gold who's a comic, and she's quite funny. And she calls the office often. And but when she calls, she announces herself to my receptionist as uh, it's Eleanor Roosevelt for Mark Sandroff, but she'll have a different name every day. So I get so one day my receptionist tells me uh, Judy's on the phone again. She says she's Barbara Streisand today. I said, oh really? So I pick up the phone, and in my in my way, I said, hello, gorgeous. I picked up the phone and said, hello, gorgeous. And all of a sudden, I hear, uh, Mark, I, had to t- I would like to talk to you about the, this uh, the getting securing rights. For I said, wait a minute, wait a minute here. I said, I waited my whole life to talk to you on a telephone. I was just deceived. Somebody told me it was somebody pretending to you. Can we start this over, please? And she laughed, and she said, yes, let's start over. Hi, Mark, this is Barbara. I was no more collected at that point than I was a moment prior, but she had called because she, she was told by her director, who I think was sitting in the room saying, call him, he'll faint, he'll give you anything you want, and she wanted to secure rights in an arrangement that my client Peter Matz had written for his wife, Marilyn, and Marilyn was refusing to give the permission, and so the director, Richard J. Alexander, had her call me directly thinking I would move heaven on earth for her. And I did, and I talked Marilyn into it, and um, it was that very beautiful, slow arrangement of uh, cockeyed optimist, um, and uh, it was Peter's arrangement. Peter was her original arranger, but they weren't together at that time, and uh, then uh, he died, and Marilyn, at the funeral, his wife sang that arrangement, and Barbara heard it and wound up with it. And so anyway, that's my interaction with Barbara. So this is the difference between lawyers and producers. So you're a lawyer, so you say, oh, I, I didn't work for her because you didn't have a retainer letter or engagement letter or anything. As a producer, I'm like, man, you totally work for her. And I'm just going to spin that a little bit. Yeah, okay. I'll uh, take it. So I actually flirted with the idea of being an entertainment lawyer myself because I was going to be, I was a L.A. law kid, like growing up watching that. I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer until I found the theater. And then thought about law school and started to look at some entertainment law universities, if you will, or departments. And I really couldn't find many of them. So what was it? What were you studying? Well, like, shame on you, because they had computers by the time you were doing that. I didn't Barely. Have, I didn't have Barely the advantage of a computer. <laughs> so I had to go to the playbills of all the shows and look in the backward list legal counsel, and I made a list of everybody who was on a show, and I wrote to them. You know, I came up with a number of names, but very few actually agreed to see me. Um, I, uh, Freddie Gershon at that time was an entertainment lawyer and I wrote to him and uh, he wrote me a rejection letter which I saved and now we're good friends and, and I waved that in his face and he laughs because, you know, he rejected me. But Alan Bomser said, come see me. He said, I, I have a new firm. I'm, uh, you know, I'd be happy to see you. I don't really need anybody but let's, let's try and give on back the way people gave to me. And he created a job for me and uh, taught me and then I went into his practice as soon as I got out of school and then I brought him to another place when I decided I wanted to leave to do more theater, more production council work, and I brought him with me to that company, Gottlieb Schiff. So, um, yeah, that was how I did it. You have to compile. Now you can do it on computer. I mean, there weren't even courses in entertainment law when I was in law school. There was one copyright course, period. 
but you don't learn it until you get into an office and see you know, what a general practice lawyer has to know to specialize in entertainment. Any advice you got from him back then that you still think about today in that first job? Sounds like he was quite a mentor to you. He was. Two things come to mind. Uh, one is don't take every potential client who comes through the door. Because when you're starting a practice, you're tempted to do that because you need to make a living and get, and, and get your feet wet. But you wind up in relationships with these people and their family that you can't ultimately break if it turns out that they're not a lucrative client or that they're not an easy client. And so you wind up having a lot of clients, some of whom you are like grandfathered in. By the time you get successful and you can pick and choose, you can't really turn to these people who you love and who you've been with all this time and say, sorry, you're not making me enough money, I have to, I, I have to let you go. Agents can do that. Agents can look around and, you know, we only have a limited amount of time and resources, and so they can uh, pick and choose. But, you know, I, I have hundreds of clients. They're not all active at the same time, but, you know, if you add them all up, there are hundreds of them. And so the first thing is be a little careful and selective when you're building the practice. Um, and let's see, what, what else did I learn from Alan? Oh. Uh, the way in which he built clients. He took, he took a gamble uh, with most of his clients. He didn't charge a set fee or an hourly fee. He charged a percentage of their income. I thought at that time everybody charged a percentage of their income. I didn't understand uh, that that was not all that common. Um, even to this day, there aren't that many that do that. So you wind up, you know, 90% of the work you do doesn't necessarily pay off in a large way, but you get a couple of things and the percentage helps to uh, bring in the fees. This was one of the first things I noticed about you, as opposed to many other lawyers that I was dealing with, and this is a model that you still use from time to time to this day, right? You, you take a percentage instead of charging these struggling artists who may not have the cash to spend the thousands of dollars it takes. Yeah, I invest in their career, you know, and, and sometimes at, when they start to really make it big, they turn around and say, what the hell am I paying such a percentage? You're not doing that much work on that thing. And so, you know, a couple of them uh, have ruffled feathers over it, but for the most part, they understand that, you know, it's, it's, they just chalk up the percentage and they don't count on it as theirs. And in that way, they have free access to me as much as they want. And so most people are happy with their arrangement, and I am too. It does sound like you've always adopted this build a relationship, build a client, and follow them throughout their career model, which is more typical of an agent. How come you didn't go the agent route? You could be like running CAA right now. You know, I might have gone that way if I had gotten a first clerk job at William Morris, which I had applied to. You know, I wound up getting a job with Alan and Bomser instead, and so I learned the private practice of a small uh, law firm. I never had the agency experience, and I don't think you can turn back. Once you start to build a private practice, you, you sacrifice everything you've built up if you take a corporate job. And so I wasn't willing to do that. But I do enjoy the agency business. I don't actively seek employment for my clients. Uh, if it happens, I'm thrilled, but I, I'm not allowed to, nor do I actually spend a lot of time doing that. But a lot of the work that I do, other than securing the employment, is agent-like. You know, it is negotiating deals and making recommendations and, uh, you know, giving guidance. Whatever the client needs, I'm available. If I'm the only rep, fine. If I'm the guy on the, the business affairs guy on the team with an agent and a manager, fine. It just it depends on what I'm needed to do. Can you talk about your typical day for... 
for you? Like when you go to the office, what, what do you spend most of your time doing? Well, now it's all, it's all email. I mean, I spend all day on email, and when the paperwork has to be done, I make a pile. And by the weekend, if the pile is not attended to, that's what my weekend is all about. So by Monday, I've done all the paperwork, usually on the weekend. But it's the, it's the constant communication and the putting out fires and answering. And, you know, it's a juggling act. What I'm best at, I'm able to juggle, you know, 50 things that are on my mind at the same time and give it a priority and try not to make the client feel like they're getting short shrift. So for someone who has been on the other side of a negotiation with you several times throughout my career, I will state... And then you started to delegate it to others, if I recall. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> absolutely true, because frankly, I was like, this guy is way too good. Um, I will, listen, I will say that for the record, you are an outstanding negotiator. Where did you learn it? I have no idea. I guess Alan Bomser. I guess that was my mentor. And I've worked with other lawyers along the way, but um, that was the guy who taught me everything. So I, in my head, I'm imitating him. Every time I start to do something, it's kind of what would Brian Bertano do? It's, you know, what would Alan Bomser do in this situation? We just lost him a month ago. That's why he's so much on my mind. Oh, but I, up until a month ago, you know, I had him, you know, for the 40-some odd years that I'm practicing law, and we remained very close, and he was my influence. That's how I learned what I do. And what do you think or what would he say is the key to a successful negotiation? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, obviously the answer is compromise. You know, at the end of the negotiation, each party should feel they didn't quite get what they want, but they got close enough for jazz, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I think it's a matter of personality. You know, I I'm, I'm surprised when people tell me that they think that, I, uh, that I'm huffy or that, I, uh, that I'm uh, uh, difficult. I don't set out to do those things, and I don't see it that way. I mean, if I'm, if I'm difficult, it's because I see what I'm saying as the right answer, not because I'm trying to beat down the opponent or, you know, these are relationships that, that I have to, uh, you know, expect for the rest of my career. I mean, you and I just went through a tough one on, on a show that you produced, and it, you can't you can't go for broke on every conversation, you know, because you you know then there's going to be another show. You don't want your client to be represented in that way. On the other hand, I know of representatives that are just unwilling to have any kind of conflict because they're scared shit the next day. They're not going to uh, they're not going to be able to deal on another matter with the same guy. So some people are very cautious of that. It's really striking the balance between protecting your client and uh, you know, not offending your adversary. How do you, or maybe you do, do you take it personally sometimes? Do you, how do you not take it personally? How do you leave the negotiation at the door when you close the office for the day and go home? Or do you, or, do you, or does it keep you up at night when If I've had a particularly home? difficult conversation or negotiation, it, it eats away at me actually that night or, or during the night, I'll wake up in the morning, you know, I. Uh, I can remember getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning because I was so upset by the behavior of an agent I was dealing with who I like and considered a friend, uh, but he was just, you know, some agents adapt to personality. It's, it, uh, they, uh, they, they're their own special creation, you know, and I don't like that. I don't like the kind of agent that curses and hangs, you know, bams the phone down on you. That, that's, to me, that's out of the movies. I don't do that. Um, so yes, when I have a disagreement, you know, and I had a couple of them, you know, over <laughs> over that last show. I mean, you 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 had a difficult situation, and I had a difficult situation. But you know, 
here we are, we're smiling at each other, and then you move on. Well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons I've always been such a big fan of yours is because, frankly, I know when I have a, when I'm having a tough negotiation with an agent, with a lawyer, with anybody, frankly, and I'm frustrated, it's usually because they're doing a very good job for their client. You know, I, I shouldn't, you're right. For a while, I thought, oh, everyone should be thrilled with a negotiation at the end of it. And, and no, everyone should just want just a, a little bit more. But the other reason I'll say, and you probably don't know this, one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of yours is that you came to the very first reading I ever produced. Did I Did like it? I don't think so. It wasn't very good. So, <laughs> uh, But actually, it was while I was doing Showboat. And what you, was it? It was a television theme song review called Primetime down at uh, Musical Theater Works, 440 Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you, I was doing Showboat, so you RSVP'd, and I was like, oh my gosh, my boss told me he was so important, uh, and now he's coming. So thank you very publicly for coming to that. You're welcome. I must have, must have known somebody in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> right. So... Let's get, I want to get back to the negotiation for a second. What is, what is the most common mistake you think people make when they are negotiating? You've done it so long. You deal with a lot of new negotiators, I would imagine. Anytime. Okay, I have one now that you know, I won't be specific about, but there's been a lot of development work by, you know, by a music staff, arrangers, orchestrators, uh, music supervisors, lots of readings and a project that's in development, and they put in a lot, a lot of time, and you never get the negotiation for the Broadway or the West End production until it's clear that all that development is leading in that direction. So, you know, after all of this, this work, they, uh, there's a show that's going to the West End, and they offer a rather minimal deal, and all they can say in defense of it is, it's a modest budget, and we're only running for a certain amount of weeks. And all the things that managers and producers have to take into consideration to be financially responsible for, for the money. But my point of view is, listen, I have you know, arrangers and orchestrators that live hand to mouth, and they never, uh, they never signed up for, a, uh, for any specific terms. And now, finally, after years of development, we get to negotiate the terms. And you say very minimal terms, very and. Each of us has our own point of view, but my job is, it's not that I have to, that I want to ignore the financial circumstances the producer's telling me, but that's his or her problem. My problem is to get my client the best deal I can under the circumstances, because my client is, is not the, the wealthy producer or the wealthy author. My client is the support person that's helping the author's music get to its fullest. So two opposite sides of the negotiation. They have their point of view. I can't really fault them, except that you know, when they say, it's, we don't have it in the budget, and my answer is, well, you forgot to put it in the budget. You, you have, you've presented a budget that's inadequate, and at the last minute telling me I have to stick to it. And my concern is for my client and his baby and his rent. So that's, that's where a negotiation uh, you know, uh, can get uh, heated. Do you miss the days of negotiation occurring over the phone? As opposed to email? Yeah, because you, you've been on both sides. I mean, It ultimately can lead to a phone call, but not until we've used every color font <laughs> in the book, and not until we've gone back four or five times and narrowed down the 20 points to four. 
and then I then I like to get on the phone and see if it can be resolved. But you know, it's easier for me to do it uh, an email. I can do it, you know, in my boxer shorts at eleven o'clock at night or on a vacation. I don't have to be sitting in a, in a suit at my at my desk. Do you ever? I've always wondered because usually when we call an agent or a lawyer for the you know, first time and say, "Hey, we want to do this." We anticipate, or we'll find out very quickly, that the client would like to do the gig provided the terms are adequate, right? We get, that's why we enter into the negotiation. So, and then sometimes these negotiations take forever, especially when you're dealing with authors or, or rights or something. All those right? pesky people. I know. Yes. Uh, or producers. So, would you ever say, okay, I know my client wants to do this, and Ken wants to hire my client. Let's just go get a conference room and sit down for one day and just bang out the whole thing. By the end of the day, we'll be done and we'll Would you ever do that? I haven't yet because a day is a lot of time, you know, and uh, it's easier to narrow it down in piecemeal so that if you have to have that meeting, and of course I often have that last you know, resort meeting, it doesn't take a day and go, you don't have to go through 25 different points. You just concentrate on the handful of points that can't get resolved. Yeah, no one wants to do this with me. I can't get anyone to buy this. Oh, well. Uh, on, <laughs> on we go. How do you represent, you, you, you have this very diverse client list where you represent shows sometimes and producers. Why do you think both sides of the aisle, so to speak, trust you? What is it about you that allows you to work on both sides? Well, experience on both sides. I mean, for the first 25 years of my practice, I did a lot of production work, lots and lots of shows. Um, I started to build a practice of artists, uh, and particularly music staff, arrangers, orchestrator, music directors. Um, I, I represent about 115 arrangers, orchestrator, music directors, and I don't know of another rep in town that has more than three. So I have a pretty much, uh, uh, you know, a monopoly on that and so the other arrangers say he'll go to him because he knows this and he knows what so-and-so got and what he can get from such and such and so that's how that built up so the production started to slow down for me and I went into partnership with the fabulous Jason Baruch who specializes in productions so except for the conflict of interest problem that happens when his producer client wants to get rights from my author client or hire my conductor client um, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful synergy uh, I still do some production work, but you know you have to stay up on the securities uh, rules, and and uh, I have uh, partners in the office that that do that all day long, and so I'm uh, I'm doing less of it. But the reason why I track both is because I have experience in both, and uh, it's a word of mouth situation. How have contracts? Let's just talk about authors for a second. How have you seen contracts change over the last twenty three years or so? terms of what being asked or what authors are willing to give up or not give up. Do you notice any trends? Well, certainly the, the way royalties are computed changed along the way. And the whole idea of, of computing on net operating profits, royalties that aren't based strictly on the box office or aren't based on a flat number, but, are, but allow the producer to share the risk of the show with the creative people and so if they're not doing very well if you were getting a percentage of gross that would still be a tremendous amount of money but if you were getting a modest guarantee and a percentage of profits of which there are none then that helps keep the show open longer uh, and so that's a trend that we've had to accept and 
modify along the way. The idea of amortizing the cost of the of the initial production budget so that you know each week every participant who's on a profit formula is uh, losing a share of profits in order for the investors to get paid back quicker. And if that happens, then they're rewarded at the end. But they they take a gamble with the producer. So the computation of, of uh, the finances is very different uh, than when I first started. And just the whole way in which the world works, the email, the ability. You know, when I started to write uh, a contract, you had to type it out in longhand and cut and paste with a piece of scotch tape and Xerox it, and then you mail it, and you'd wait for somebody to mail it back. And so, you know, anything you did, you, you knew that you had at least a week till you'd hear from anybody about it. Then faxes came in and it got a little bit worse because the minute you put something out, it was back at you, they faxed it. And now with email and with texting, uh, the workload is 10 times as much. I mean, the advantage is you get a lot more done, hopefully you make more money or you're more efficient. But the downside is the work just keeps pouring out because there's no delay time that you can hide and move on to the next thing because it's back on your desk five seconds after you send it out. So those, those are ways in which it's changed. Since you have, we're going to totally switch gears now. We talk about your close relationship I know you have with all of your clients. How do you break it to them when you don't like their work? When you see a show that isn't quite working or you don't love it and they ask you, like, what do you think? Do you break it? Do you spin it? What do you, what do, you do? Very often I'm encouraging and not specific and I recognize that my taste is not, you know, the universal taste. I can give you examples of ridiculous opinions that I've given my clients seeing a show in preview or reading something. Please, give, uh, give me one. Give me something where you're like, this is awful. I told Jim Dale when I read the script of Barnum that he shouldn't do it because it was a fourth-rate Robert Preston vehicle. And I was like two, two seconds out of law school at that point. He did win a Tony for that, I believe, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, t- I told um, a client who was on the design staff of Hamilton that I thought it was absolutely brilliant, but I'm not sure it's commercial. Uh, you know, those are two examples, That's right? That's a good one. I have more, unfortunately. We all do. We all do. <laughs> I passed on Dear Evan Hansen. You know, uh, who wants that? Who job? wants that now? You've done some film work as well, right? For movies and... Yes, I've represented a few independent films. Um, the, the one I'm proudest of is Grey Gardens, the original documentary for the Maisels Brothers. Um, and I was very proud to represent Christine Ebersole when she did the musical. And so I have those posters, you know, kissing on the wall. Uh, and um, I've done, done a lot of film score work. Mark Shaman did a lot of films in, in the 80s and the 90s, well, in the 90s and the zeros, 2000s. Um, and I acquire property, uh, rights and properties. Uh, I sell uh, rights and plays so that they could become films like Hairspray and, and like that. Um, I don't take on too much film production work. That's a specialty that I, you know, that I'd have to fudge my way through, and I'm past my fudge days. Is there anything from how legal work is done in the film world that the Broadway world could learn from? Anything that they do that we should be doing? No, they're kind of different. I mean, uh, the film work, they pay you better and they take away ownership so that they can do what they want to your property. I'm speaking on behalf of an author. In the play world, they pay you less, but the author controls it. The author keeps the copyright. That's the big difference in the in the way the two medium uh, work. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I mean, the film work the studios, the, the Hollywood lawyers, they have 
50 and 60 page schedules and standard terms and riders that they've worked out with every agency so they don't have to go through it. It's not like that. Theater, you know, we all use the same forms. They all, if it's a Broadway show, it almost always winds up in the desk of the Dramatist Guild. You know, it's, it's more of a community. It's more of a um, standard thing. Now, I'm facing the guy who's bucking all of that, and, and I know you've you know made some inroads in how you raise money and, and differing in the way you produce and the way the others do in a hope to you know come up with a formula that's more successful than the random statistics of the average producer, and I respect that, but it's not very common. Um, it's it, it is just it's a different philosophy. So I'm doing a little bit of consulting work actually right now for a company that is used to the Hollywood model, and. I've told them exactly what you just said, and, and on Broadway it doesn't work that way. If you want to hire writers to do something, you're not going to own it. And they said, well, but we want to own it. And I said, well, that's just not how it works. And they said, well, couldn't it work that way? To which I said, well, I guess I could take something to someone like Mark Sendroff and say, here's how much it's going to cost uh, in order to own it. But would you even entertain a proposal like that? Yes, it depends on the client. I wouldn't entertain it for <clears throat> for Mark Shaman and Jason Robert Brown, but if I have a client who either really needs the money now or thinks that he or she can knock off another one, you know, in a couple of weeks, it's just as good as this one. It, it depends on what the client wants. Yeah. All right. My last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you to thank you for your years of dedicated service to all your clients and to the industry as a whole because you've helped rewrite and write some of the legal history of Broadway over the past how many years? Uh, 44. That is incredible. Uh, so the genie wants to thank you by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about the industry that really keeps you up at night? Have you throwing things? You said you're not a huffer, you're not a phone slammer. What would you ask the genie to wish away in an instant? What makes Mark Sundrop mad? There's one, I don't know if this is too specific, but since I didn't talk about it yet in this interview, I'd like to talk about it, but on, on behalf of arrangers and orchestrators, there's something that drove me crazy when, I first, when it was first brought to my attention, and I put in a lot of time and made great strides in improving it. In the year that Chicago, the revival opened, I'm thinking it's 98, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, there were three other shows that opened in revivals that contained dance music written by the great Peter Howard. And uh, it was uh, 1776, Annie, Chicago, and Hello, Dolly, I think, was the fourth one. And they were all revivals. And Peter called me and he said to me, I've now sat through the fourth opening night hearing my very important dance music in all of these shows, and I'm not entitled to a penny, and I don't understand why I'm not getting paid for that. And so I said, well, it's because the custom is that at the end of the initial producer's runs of company, the composer gets to own your arrangements and do what he or she wants to do with them, including not crediting you and not compensating you. But they own them, it's up to them. And so the only way to fix this is to uh, have an arrangement with the composer and or the producer that says, when you're done, you can own them, Mr. Author, but you can't use them in certain types of significant production unless we have some kind of protection. 
And so I am happy and very proud to say that at this point that has become the custom and that the producers have stopped resisting it just because it was it was so different. And even the authors had. I had a conversation with John Kander about this and he's the dance music arranger of Gypsy. And so I said, don't you have, I know, I know how you feel as a composer, but as a dance arranger, does it bother you when you go and hear the stuff done? Revives on Broadway, new orchestrations where the orchestrator is paid fee and royalty and you're getting nothing. And he said, no, I don't have that resentment because I made good money when all those gypsy companies were happening, and that's just the way it is. And I said, well, you know, that's what you're used to, but I'm here to try to change that, and I have. So that's it's the resistance to that, the idea that uh, the producer or the producer agrees, oh, well, the set designer uh, owns the set design, and if there's ever a revival, it'll be up to that set designer to make a deal. But the orchestrator doesn't own the orchestrations, and, and he doesn't get the deal. That's what bugs me, and that's what I, I set about trying to uh, change. And probably that's why my list is 115 long in that area, because I, I have a certain camaraderie with the arrangers and orchestrators. I love it. You're acting like your own genie there. You're actually making the change happen. Uh, yeah. uh, well, thank you for that. Thanks for all you do for the industry and for being here today. website is sendropbaruch.com. Right, B-A-R-U-C-H.com? Yes, I think he would say Baruch, but... Baruch. Uh, actually, he would say Baruch Sendroff, but that's another conversation. Sendroff Baruch. Sendroffbaruch.com. Check it out. Uh, you'll learn a lot. Actually, I was on it earlier. You'll learn a lot just by reading Mark's bio. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and subscribe. And also give us a nice, big, juicy kiss of a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram. That's my social media of choice. Instagram, Ken Davenport B-Way, or on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. We will see you next time. Once again, I want to thank Mr. Mark Sendroff for joining us today and spending an hour with us. And he is an attorney, so that hour is actually very valuable. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your wisdom with everyone out there. And speaking of hours, in just a whole bunch of hours. I can't do the math in my head. On November 16th and 17th of this year, we are holding our third annual Producers Perspective Super Conference, and this one is going to be three times as super as the first one. Uh, we've got two incredible keynote speakers, Joe Iconis, Be More Chill Fame, Heidi Schreck, What the Constitution Means to Me, Pulitzer Prize finalist Heidi Schreck. Both of those folks are delivering keynote addresses, not together, by the way, not George and Gracie. They are doing separate keynote addresses, sharing the secrets of their success. I can't wait to tune in myself to these. They're very, very inspiring people. You're going to love it. So Google Ken Davenport Super Conference. It'll pop up. Grab a ticket before they're gone. We've sold out every other Super Conference we've had. We will sell out this year's as well. If you're excited for this season of the podcast, please do me a favor. Review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll just help other theater makers and theater fans like yourself find us and learn more about our guests. And supporting our guests is a great way to get more guests on the podcast so we can keep doing this for you. If you are looking for an attorney for help with your shows, check out Mark's website at sendoffbaruch.com, sendroff with two Fs, B-A-R-U-C-H dot com. Uh, speaking of where to find people, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Ken Davenport B-Way. This is where, by the way, where I drop all my announcements. I put stuff here first, even before press releases. So do follow me on Instagram at Ken Davenport B-Way. Uh, and now... 
my favorite time of the week. It's hashtag songwriter of the week time. Today we'll be hearing a song from Or Matthias's collection, Made of Sand. Made of Sand by Or Matthias. That's right, if you've never heard of Or Matthias, then we are doing our job. That's what the hashtag songwriter of the week is all about. Us putting a spotlight on a songwriter you don't know anything about. If you want to learn more about him, do check out www.ormatiasmusic.com. And we will see you next week with a brand new episode of the Producers Perspective Podcast. Now listen in to Made of Sand. Sand of my grandparents and their parents who use their hands. In the field outside my window, there used to be somebody's horses running wild and free. Or so I thought. Because nothing here is free, oh, nothing here is wild. I want to be somebody wild, like a child looking out the window. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.